open up your Bibles now to Luke, Luke chapter 1, as we look back now to the beginning of the story of why in the world people would get into the ocean and be baptized underwater. We go back to the origin of why we gather here at an 11 a.m. service or why we do what we do, why we string lights and stars and hang Christmas trees off pallets. That is so cool. Why we do stuff like that. We go back to the original story, to the gospel of Luke, to find out who this man Jesus was, who this man Jesus is, who this man Jesus claims to be. Because when you figure this out, you'll have no problem, like I do, under this shirt, wearing a shirt that says, Jesus is real. Like, just straight up. You'll know. He, no, I'm telling you what. He is real. Even the, the gentleman I met in the hallway from the 9 a.m. service gave me his testimony in like 30 seconds. Very difficult to do. Before Jesus, he was out and about running amok. Now he works at the Samaritan Hospital. He's got his life, and he equates that to Jesus Christ. It wasn't a, a program, a step book, a, a, a duty, a, a yoga pose, a thing. It was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ. And when you know Jesus is real, all of that comes to make perfect sense. In Luke here, in chapter 5, begin, or chapter 1, we'll never get to chapter 5. Luke here in chapter 1, verse 5, begins his narrative of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this to you again. Luke, Luke, Luke the author, Luke the apostle, Luke the disciple, Luke the doctor. He says, Luke, get my book. He says, Luke, look at... The, the puns just get better and better. They get better every service. He, look into my... Luke wrote his book more exhaustively than Matthew, which was on the circuit. It was already at Barnes & Noble. He wrote it more exhaustively than Mark. It was also available on your Kindle. He wrote it more exhaustively than John does years later. What I mean by that is when Luke wrote it, he went so far back into the Annunciation before Christ was even born to tell the story right where it, listen, began. In order that you who are critics, you who are thinkers, you who are worshipers and disciples would be certain of the things you've believed. You would be certain when you're walking into Agate Beach to get baptized on a December chilly day. I'm I have no question what I'm doing. You would be certain when it comes to giving of your time, talent, and treasure to the things and the glory and the ministry of God because there's no better thing to do than to live for the one who died for me. That's it. That's it. That's it. And when you say yes to Jesus, you then say yes to life and no to death. And Luke he knew just that, and so he records even further back than anyone this story. So where I'm going to pick up today is only seen in the Gospel of Luke, this far back. That is the Annunciation. If you start in Matthew, you'll jump right into the Annunciation of Jesus. You won't go as far back as the Annunciation of J the B, John the Baptizer, Jesus' younger cousin who came first before Christ. That being said, you guys ready to read some verses? I'm going to read verses 5 through 17, okay? And yeah, yeah. And then we're going to study some, okay? Then we're going to study some. You guys ready? Here it goes. Ah, there was in the days of Herod. Everyone say Herod. Ah. Now, how come he doesn't start the... No, you don't have to say that part. That's, that's too much, too much. We only need one guy doing that stuff. That's just weird. Listen, no, here... Why doesn't he start off, you know, it was a long time ago, you know, and if, you know, once upon a time. He doesn't start that way because this isn't a story. This is history. 
And so he uses in his first verse, verse 5 would be the first encounter of the story, he uses history so guys like Josephus and Tertullus and secular historians would coincide and be congruent with their reports of the exact same timeline of what's happening. Because this is, Luke took this very seriously. While he wanted faith to grow, he also wanted to be above reproach like any doctor would in writing his prescription of how to be saved. So he tells the story the most exhaustively. You're very fortunate to be in the book of Luke right now, especially during this Advent season, wondering, is it real? Is it true? Is this? It is. It is. It is. He, he tells it this way. There was in the days of Herod, known as Herod the Great. Eh, really, he's Herod the Horrible. Well, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, so now we know who's there and where they're at, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So now we've got this ministry couple as well, Zacharias and Elizabeth. I call them Zach and Beth, okay? Zach and Beth are here, and they're ministry-minded. He's a priest. She's from the lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother, also a priest. So these guys are in the ministry, but they're really just a minority Did you know that people like them, there were 20,000 in number, 20,000 other people just like Zach and Beth. There was a lot of priests. It's not really that big of a deal. As a matter of fact, because of how small and how old they were, they probably lived in an outskirt town and were farmers by trade, kind of nominal and marginal. Yet check this out. They make the very first verse of Luke's narrative of the very story of Jesus saving the world in company with Herod, who's historically renowned and famous. Zach and Beth, Mr. and Mrs. Nobody, we would call them, okay? Nobodies. But why did they make the book? Look at verse 6. Because <laughs> you're just like Elizabeth. You're just like Zach. You're just, you're just you really, it, it, all things considered, you're just doing your part, being faithful trying not to be Herod, okay? You're trying not to... It says this in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God. Wow. Walking in all of the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Stop right there and eyes up here. Just respect this couple with me. These guys are living in the days of Herod, okay? This would be difficult. If you thought Hillary was bad, okay? If that's, I, don't, I don't know what you think. I don't, people think that, apparently. If you, if you, you have no idea. Okay? And if you think we're in trouble because of Trump, okay? Okay. I don't know what you think. You have no idea. Okay? And if you think Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, you're right. But, but you have no idea compared to the carnage and the chaos and the suffering that this cat and his sons and his fathers brought upon the lineage of Israel. The Herods, the Herods, they're the worst. The wor- okay. And in the midst of that, you got some faithful cats. Zach and Beth. And I just want, even if that's all you get today, man, our world's so crazy, you know, Russia and China and Canada, whatever they're doing, you know, and, you know, what are they, what are they doing? (laughs) Text me, let me know. Nobody knows. And you could easily cast off restraint, become, you know, bothered or burdened, bitter, bummed out, whatever. Or you could say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk in this, in the, in the, in the counsel of God's will. All his commandments, I'm going to walk righteous and blameless. That's what I'm going to do. I can't help Herod. I can't help that guy. I can't help her. I can't help them. That's not my problem. I'm going to do my part and hope for the best. Now, let me just twist it up a little bit because it makes sense that we would respect this couple just so you don't put them on too high of a pedestal. Look at the lot they were given in life. Verse 7. 
but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. Oh no. Interesting. In those days, women had less going for them than they do now, okay, for sure. And in those days, two of the main possessions that a woman had were her beauty and her babies. And this particular Elizabeth had grown in age. I'm sure she was beautiful. But she'd grown in age, wasn't a spring chicken anymore. And she had no babies. And that pain has been felt by many. And that situation and position, especially the husband and the wife wondering why and trying, and yet they find themselves, listen, and maybe you're here today and there's a barrenness of some sort or maybe things have become old or repetitious in your life or maybe just things didn't get handed to you the way you wanted them. We've, yeah, They find themselves saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to remain faithful. We're going to remain committed. We're going to remain true to the Lord. That's all we can do. That's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to hope for the best. And you can put me in my grave with that on my capstone. I did my best. Okay? I stayed the course, didn't quit, didn't throw in the towel, didn't tap out, didn't hit eject, didn't run. That's what they do. Let's keep reading. And so it was, verse 8, that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, stop right there, and eyes up here, as a priest, there's 20,000 of these cats, and for, seven, for, for one week out of the year, twice, two weeks per year, so twice a year you would go to the temple and serve as a priest. The other remaining 50 or 48 weeks, because it's a Jewish calendar, the other remaining weeks you would just work your job, plow the field, preach a sermon or two at the synagogue, the local synagogue, maybe do a fly fish, and you'd just be in the background. But once per week, twice per year, you would go to Jerusalem with 750 other priests, and you would serve for a week long. It's his turn. Oh, my week's up, honey. Let's go to Jerusalem, the big show, and let's serve God. This is what we do. And they would go to church in that way. Look at verse 9. And according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Stop right there. Eyes up here. What? This. This. This is the jackpot. This is the lottery. This is what every priest would look forward to their entire life, and not every priest would get to participate in in their life. This particular lot that was drawn, dice that was rolled, plot that was given, was cherished amongst all the priests, and so cherished was it that once you got this position to go into the Holy of Holies, not the Holy of Holies, but the outer courtyard and to offer incense, once you got that privilege, guess what? You never got it again. You don't get to play the game anymore. You're done. You, you get to be a priest, but not to that level. And if you don't get that picked out, you don't draw that card, you never got that. And so here's Zacharias going to the temple again. I'm going to go serve. I'm getting old. I'm kind of <laughs> on the roster, barely. I'm over here, and it's my turn to roll the dice. And the last time I rolled, ah, maybe next time. And he comes back six months later, roll the dice again. That'd be, that'd be cool to get to go in further and take the, the, the frankincense and, and myrrh, the incense, and to drop it on the altar that was hot. And that incense, that smoke would rise up, and as it goes to God's nostrils and he smells it, then you would utter the prayers on behalf of the people, and you would come out, and it was the closest you would ever get to God in your life. And for years and decades, in 40 or 50 years, we don't know, he's never been picked, always lost, kind of like you guys doing the lottery out there, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it just never works. One of these dice, though, you know, and if it does, call me, you know, but anyways, you know, and so on this day, though, this day, Zechariah shows up, casts the lot, 
I, I, I think this might be the winner. I think I might be. And the young guys and the old guys, the other priests look at Zacharias. They know him well. Dude, you're going in, bro. You get to throw the first pitch. Like, this is the Super Bowl. You're singing the national anthem. This is the highlight of your life. Better suit up. And he gets ready to go in. Look at verse 10. It says, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside of the hour of incense. So for an hour, he would be in there praying and dropping this incense on and ministering to the Lord in this way. And for that same hour, people would be on the outside, some on their knees, prostrate, laying, praying for that hour. Uh, most would probably hope that the guy offering the incense inside would be kind of that quick prayer guy. You know, the guy that's just going to go in there and pray and get out. Because guess what? We're kneeling on marble, bro. You know, like, make this quick, Zacharias. And if you know the story, he lingers long. You ever been in a prayer meeting like that? You've been in a prayer circle where that one person keeps praying and you're just like, dude, land the plane, land the plane. In, in Jesus' name, we agree. You know, land the plane. I gotta be... So Anyways, maybe, maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but... Uh, oh, verse 11, I gotta pray in just a minute. We're reading still here. Then, then I want you to feel it. Then, when, then, people praying outside. It's his turn inside. He's been faithful his whole life. He has not been dealt a good hand, yet he still has played them well. He's old and barren. There's a guy at the regime at the helm of the world that is horrible. Verse 11, then circled in my Bible, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. You would respond the same way. As a matter of fact, in the scriptures, whenever an angel shows up to speak to a person, whenever the first words out of the angel's mouth is always, be not afraid and do not fear. You know why? Because they're afraid and they're fearing their lives. So when people tell me, I talk to angels all the time, I'm like, I don't know if you do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you talk to some, I don't know. In the Bible, when an angel, it's like you're on your face and they're like, you're, they're checking your pacemaker to make sure you make it through this. Like, this angel's got a liability on his hands, this old man. Don't die. <sighs> I just, that's how I see it. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. What? And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, just stop right there and eyes up here. Was he at that moment in the prayer room praying for a kid? Okay, part of me just says no. Like, he's old. He let that one go. That prayer had been put into God's inbox many years earlier and left there. Let me just ask you, do you have any prayers in God's inbox? That you just kind of, I think I sent it to him. Maybe I should check my, my connection. Maybe it didn't go through, you know? Go to my sent mail. Did I send that? Because nothing happened. I asked for my son to get saved. Hey, he's not saved. I asked for this to happen. It didn't happen. I asked to be healed. It didn't get healed. What if it's in God's inbox? And at the time that God sees fit, when God's done in you what he needs to do, when God's going to do in others what he's going to do upon that provision, yet you're an American here, most of us, and when you pray and it doesn't get answered, you take that as a big fat no, okay? Well, I prayed how many times? Well, pretty much a full time, like once for sure. Well, I didn't say amen. Well, I didn't really pray. Well, I wanted it. Well, I don't even know, you know? <laughs> if God knows what I need, what? You know? You, know, you never go out to eat and look at the waiter and say, you know what I need. No, you tell them exactly how to cook it, what to leave off, what to put on, what's on the side, you know, how to do it. You tell them, God says, hey, you have not, because you ask not. 
James actually goes on to say, Jesus' little brother, he said, and you ask not, and you have not, and then when you ask, you still don't get because you ask amiss. You're asking for all the wrong reasons. It's not that what you're asking for or what you have asked for, listen, this is for somebody. It's not that what you've asked for is wrong. It's just that your motives for asking it may be wrong. What you asked for was right, but God looks at your heart and says, if I give it to you now, it's going to be received wrong. You're going to, you're going to misuse it. You're going to misread it. You're going to abuse it. I can't give that to you now because if I give that to you now, I won't have your heart like I want to get your heart. I won't get you to that place where I can really get into your life, Zacharias. And so instead of giving you a kid when you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, I'm going to, I really need this. I'm doing this for me, God would say. I don't know if you can handle that. Hope, hope you can. But God answers your prayers for him. Okay? It's not our will, but it's his will that we need done. And when his will is done, it's way better than your will. Okay? It, it, his will blesses you and everyone around you. God is legit. God knows how to bless, and he knows when to bless. And so all of a sudden, this angel's like, hey, Zachariah, heard your prayers. You're going to have a kid. And he's like, a little late, bro. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, well, he goes on to say this, verse 14, and you, and you, that's you, Zach, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth as we do to this day when babies are conceived and born. They're a blessing. Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, neither wine, or, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Very important verse. We'll look in depth at that next week. And in verse 16, it says, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Stop right there and bow your heads with me as we pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, in Jesus' name, we've read your word. And we are here gathered as one, and we are submitted to you. And in that, Father, you find great joy, and we ask, Lord, that you would have great freedom to move about us today. And if anybody has, Lord, a bondage that's not yet broken, or faith that's not yet activated, or salvation that's not yet secure, or things, Lord, that need to be addressed, we ask you to do just that and to bless, Lord, your body for your glory. And Lord, hear our prayers. All of us have prayed, Lord, for you to do things in our lives, and we would all surrender those prayers and say, yeah, we still want them, we still want, but we only want your will, and we only want, Lord, your purpose. So forgive us even now of our sins, Lord. We're just so, so silly sometimes. I know I am, and I just want to be strengthened in your word. I want my brothers and sisters to be strengthened as well as we study this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the power of God's word and the power of God's story, uh, there are two different kinds of uh, books in the Bible, actually three if you count the, the Psalms, which are poems and, and, uh, and, and songs in that way, but there's narratives and then there's theology, directives. And the, the narratives are just the stories of how, how life went and how God intermingled himself through those narratives, Jonah, Daniel, Esther, John, all the gospels, Acts, even Revelation would be an, a narrative of some sort, in, in my opinion, a future narrative, Deuteronomy. Dude, you're on to me. All those books are narratives. And I love the narratives. I, just, I, love, I love, we just went through Ephesians, and earlier we went through Romans, and all these books, and Nehemiah is a narrative. Because narratives are just people living their lives, 
just like you and I are, and God doing what he does. And then you get the directives, that is Peter and Paul and John and Jude and James and all these cats that are telling us what to do and how to do it. And Peter says something interesting in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Peter says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Peter says, I'm going to remind you of what you already know, so you know what you know. I know you know it, but I'm going to remind you of it. And so as we get into Luke and as we study this out, Luke wrote his book so Theophilus would know that he knows and remember what he knew. I got three kids, and they know a lot. You know what I'm saying? And you'll be telling your kids, hey, let me tell you what's going on here. They say, I know, I know, I know. And I'm like, well, apparently you don't. I know you do, but you don't. Like, you do, but you don't. So let me tell you what you already know because you're not living what you should. Anyway, and so the Bible stirs us up and we find ourselves, whether it's your morning devotionals, your morning quiet time, or times like this in the gathering where you're like, yep, I knew that. I knew that. Uh, that's good stuff right there because Peter, Peter who wrote that, said, I'm not going to be negligent to remind you. In other words, I will remind you. Did you know that it took Peter a time or two or three or seven or a dozen to get a few truths? You know that Peter, he had foot and mouth disease. He's always like talking, putting his mouth and doing stupid stuff. And it took Peter a long time to actually get the understanding of what God said in order to actually change his life. And Luke, his gospel and this church, South Beach, desires our lives to be radically changed. To be radically changed, to know that we know that we know, and then live as if we know what we know. And so what I just read to you, I just need you to grasp this. This is so important. What I just read to you, this whole angel showing up to Zach's first day on the job offering incense, and then this angel, this angel Gabriel, this angel Gabriel quoting out of the book of Malachi. <laughs> Malachi? Oh, it's Malachi for you guys. You guys are Bible students, right? I'm from, I'm from France. Anyways, Malachi. He quotes out of the book of Malachi an ancient promise. Do you know that? I just need you to, I need you to really settle into this as we navigate through. In the Old Testament, you have Genesis all the way to Malachi, 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 the very final book. And in the final book of Malachi, Malachi the prophet is talking to the children of Israel, and he gives these lofty promises about what God's going to do next. Ooh, and then God's going to bring a deliverer, and God himself is going to show up to the temple, and God's going to do great stuff, and he drops the mic. Boom, mic drop. And the next generation, the next generation in Malachi's day would be like, this is going to be so good. This is going to be so good. And then they would get real old, and they're going to tell their kids, it's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. And then the next kids would get older. It's supposed to be so good. It's supposed to be so good. And they would just, you know, the next generation, we're hoping it's so good. And then pretty soon, 400 years later, like, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good. Like, what would you do? Mic drop. It's going to be rad, okay? Here it comes. 400 years. Here's the part that just blew my mind last night. This angel shows up. In the midst of Herod, in the midst of barrenness, in the midst of faithfulness, the whole thing. Whoa. This angel shows up, and the angel begins to speak right where Malachi dropped the mic. The angel grabs it and quotes Malachi. Doesn't miss a beat. 400 years, like, you missed a few beats, God. No, I didn't. But you didn't do it according to my time. That's true. But Lord, I thought, no, you didn't. You know? And God does what God does because God does it right. God was getting the children of Israel, not just Zacharias and Elizabeth, but the children of Israel for the 400 years, getting them to a place and a position in their own barrenness, in their own poverty, in their own discomfort and dysfunctionalism with Herod the Great. The whole thing was all jacked up. Romans and all the stuff is, yeah. And God's like, now's a good time. 
Now's a good time to send the comforter. Now's a good time to send the savior. Now's a time to alleviate the burden of Israel. Not just them, not just Zechariah, not just Elizabeth, but the whole world. Here's the deal. Let me just read these verses to you. Okay, this is Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is before the mic drops. Malachi's got the mic. He's like, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And everyone's like, no way. Next chapter, he says this before he drops the mic. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and the great dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn. This is the quote of the angel. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Boom. And he drops the mic. Crazy town. This promise tethered with a curse. Did you notice that last word? Did you notice that last word? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to send him. I'm going to do this, lest I strike the earth with a curse. The very last word in the Old Testament is curse. Now, if you're reading the Old Testament like Luke had, like Theophilus had, like Herod had, like Peter had, like Paul had, like John had, if you read the Old Testament, that's all you got. You realize they didn't have any of the New Testament. They were the New Testament. So you're reading, you get to the end of Malachi, you're like, behold, lest I strike the earth with a curse. And you're like, it doesn't say happily ever after. Where's the last? What's next? What's next? And you're freaking out. You're like, ah! And for 400 years, you're like, I don't know. You know, things are getting better. You look outside, there's hair. You're like, well, no, they're not. And it's at that point in time when things are so nuts that God, who doesn't miss a beat with prophecy, his promises are yes and amen. He, he knows what he said, and he'll do it every single time. Did you know that the Lord is batting 1,000% as far as it pertains to prophecies. What he said he would do and how he would do it, he's batting 1,000%. Not like 850. You know, oh, I had a few of them wrong. You know. No, 1,000, because he's God and he said, I'll do it this way. 400 years passed and he shows up in this way. Now, by the way, the Old Testament, very last verse, is a hopeful verse, but there's a curse attached to it because you don't have Christ. Did you know that if you fast forward to the very last word of the New Testament, the very last word of Genesis chapter, or Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, the very last word is amen. And not just amen, but it's a statement. It's a statement. Here's what it says exactly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I love it because the Old Testament and New Testament are one testament. Without Christ, the Old Testament ends and you have the opportunity to have a curse Unless this one who's foretold enters your life, and if he does, then you, in the end of your days, will have grace from the Lord Jesus Christ, always and for all. Amen. Jesus is real, and he changes everything. If you keep reading the book, and if you see the whole thing, Genesis, narratives, directives, all the way, the beginning of Matthew, all the way, all the way, whoa! The contrast is, is absolutely crazy. Without Christ, you're cursed. With Christ, you have grace. Without Christ, you're hopeless. With Christ, you're hopeful. Without Christ, you're empty. And with Christ, you're fulfilled. And can you imagine the, the ecstasy of Luke when he wrote this? Oh, pick up that mic. Angel, where'd you grab that mic at? The angel grabs that mic. 400 years of silence. Now we can continue the story. And I would just say this. Luke knew the prophecies. <laughs> 
because the angel brought it up, but Luke pens it down. He knew the promises. Let me ask you this question. Do you know the prophecies and promises of God? Do you know what God has declared to be true and what he's doing? Are you aware of his timeline? Are you aware of his time pieces? Are you aware of his agenda right now? Or do you wake up every day just hoping Starbucks is open? You know, like what's your, what, what guides you? And what do you, do you know? I just ask you, and if you don't, figure it out, Okay. I remember when someone gave me my first Promises of God book. Hey, here's the Promises of God. It's all the verses that talk about the Promises of God. I just began to be comfortable with the Promises of God. Out of context, out of order, here's the Promises of God. Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age, and all your sins, past, present, and future, are hidden from me in the sea of forgetfulness, and I will cause all things to work together for good, and all these verses of great confidence in the promises of God. And God doesn't swing and a miss. There's no whiffs. He's got it. And what God has said to be true is true. Now, there's not just the promises, there's the prophecies. Let me just say this. Here's some straight street knowledge I'm going to drop on your head, okay? This is street logic. Okay, if all the Bible said would happen, has happened, like it said it would happen, then all that the Bible says will happen, will happen like it says it will happen, okay? You can talk about that at your life group later this week. If all that the Bible said would happen, has happened, like it said it would happen, then all that the Bible says will happen, will happen just like it says it will happen. God's batting a thousand thus far. He's not, he's, he's, he's good. So what's happening next? Let me, let me temper this with this statement. Jesus declared that the generation before the end would have a proclivity. That's maybe you and I. They would have a proclivity to look at the end times events, the prophecies, the, the last generation. They would have a proclivity to say, you know what? It's always been the same ever since he left. It's always going to be the same until he returns. There's no real difference. It's just kind of, Jesus said there'll be a generation that casts off restraint and stops looking to the sky for its return and starts to then, Matthew 24, to get mean towards other believers and starts to party and starts to drink and do things. He said there's going to be this kind of numbing effect towards the end days. Now, can I just tell you this? And you, speak, you, you, you examine your own heart. I examine mine, though. The, the coming of the Lord, the prophetical end days, timepiece, the storyline, the calendar events, I've studied it. I know it. I know exactly what's hap- what is happening next. But I'll speak for myself. There is a lethargy and an apathy towards the return of our king in my own life, as far as there has been in the past. The Bible predicts that that's the way it's going to be, and so I want to cast that off, shake that off. And I want to live like the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 says that who, he who has the hope of his return purifies himself. Did you know that? That when you believe this could be the day, perhaps today, this could be the day that Jesus would return. There's nothing prophetically preventing Christ to return today. Nothing. It's all been fulfilled for his return. It can happen now. And when you believe that, do you know that kind of makes you act different? I mean, if you believe your boss is going to show up at any time, guess what you're doing? Work. You know what I'm saying? Work. You're not, you're not doing keg stands, you know, and hang, you know, hanging out. You know, you believe this, it, this could be wrapped up at any time. You purify yourself. You're like, yeah, that's good stuff. Now I'm going to give you a flyby of what's going to happen next, okay? The prophetical timeline. And all of this revolves around the nation of Israel, which was, by the way, concepted in 1948, right around May the 13th. Okay, it came to fruition again. The Bible says, can a nation be born in a day? Now, the answer is no, it can't unless God does it. And Israel was born in a day. And the Bible speaks to the idea that when the nation of Israel is born in a day, when it comes to fruition, that the generation that sees that happen will not pass before the coming of the day of the Lord, which would be right around 100 years after a generation. So before that, 80 years before that, something, it's going to happen. 
It's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen next, by the way. The Bible predicts uh, that a one-world government system will be established where all kinds of unbiblical practices are accepted and certain things like the mark of the beast and the ruling of the Antichrist will come to pass amongst other things. That's what's going to happen next. Now, will the Antichrist, will he or she go down in history? He's like, hello, vote for me. I am indeed the Antichrist. Yeah, the answer is no. There's not going to be any capes, you know, or pitch, you know, the mustache and the hat, you know. It's not gonna, you're not going to know it's the Antichrist. It's just going to happen, okay? Whether it's a system or whether it's a belief or whether it's a person or whether it's a country, it's going to happen next, though. And then after that, uh, there is going to be the rapture of the church. The Bible uses the word uh, harpazo, snatching away, where we are caught away during that time period. A seven-year time period will then ensue. The church is rescued during that time, taken to heaven for a seven-year period while on earth things get nutty, okay? Mark of the Beast is ensued. Now, will the Mark of the Beast also go down as, line up, Mark of the Beast, I got it right here, two, two for one, you know, buy one, get three free, you know? No, it's not going to go, it's not going to be recognized as that, but it will be some sort of allegiance to a one-world system and an antichrist mentality. That's going to happen next. At that time, we will see on earth what is known as Jacob's trouble, okay, the great tribulation period. This is where the great wrath of God is poured out on the world because why? Because the world has rejected the wrath eater, Christ. Christ has absorbed the wrath of God at this point. He's taken it upon himself and you and me and anybody who calls upon Jesus won't have to go through the wrath of God because it's already been absorbed on your behalf. But if you've rejected Christ you got to get full throttle with that, and it's not going to go well for you. And that wrath will be poured out on the whole world. The book of Revelation details this. By the way, during that time, coincidentally, the time of the tribulation will be one of the biggest revivals in the world's history. Millions and possibly billions of people who rejected Christ previously will in that day get saved. Here's how I know that. The Bible says that during that day, there'll be 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams going around preaching the gospel until they're all killed for doing so, and people will be getting saved. The Bible says that there'll be an angel going back and forth throughout the whole earth saying, get saved, get saved, and people will be getting saved. The Bible says that there'll be two witnesses with miraculous power going throughout the whole earth, doing miracles, preaching, evangelizing, until they're gunned down on national TV. CNN's going to cover it. Read it. It's in the book of Revelation. It's all there. They get gunned down on national TV, and they're shown there on a live stream for three days, and on the third day, they rise up again and fly up to heaven. All that's in the book of Revelation during this wartime. <sighs> Sounds crazy, doesn't it? By the way, after the book of Luke, we're jumping right into the book of Revelation, okay? So that means you need to stick around here for at least the next three years. Don't go anywhere else. <laughs> Don't be switching churches. Don't be getting weird on me, okay? Stay here. We'll be getting into Luke, or Revelation. And, and during that time down here, seven years of chaos and tribulation, and, and some people, they hear this and they're like, really? Well, I don't know if I know about this whole Jesus thing. And I'm like, he's batting a thousand. They're like, well, I'll take my chances. What? <laughs> now, here, the cool thing is, is God's made a, a grace for that. You can get saved during the tribulation period. And as soon as you get saved, you will have your head cut off of your body. Okay, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. People will die brutally. It's going to be the worst thing ever. Yet God's grace is still acting then. And millions will get saved during that time. And then at the end of the seven-year period, Jesus Christ will descend from heaven with his bride. And he will dismantle the entire thing and bring about what's called the thousand-year millennial reign. Okay, R-E-I-G-N. It's not the thousand-year reign, R-A-I-N, that Newport has. 
different. It's different, okay? Reign. And for a thousand years, Christ will rule and reign on the earth with his bride and will be with him. The end of the thousand years, Satan is released for another season, doesn't say how long, in order to give those at that time their free will to choose God or the devil once again until God finally takes Satan and destroys him completely and banishes him to the end. And the Bible says at that point, there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow for all the days of our eternal life. When is this going to happen? I don't know. I've often thought it would happen in my day that these are the end days. Let me just say it this way. Whether these are the end days or not, they're definitely your end days, right? I mean, how are you getting out of this thing? Like, if this all doesn't go down before you go down, you, you still go down. You're, it's all applicable. And you better have your head right and your heart right and your mind right. And your decision today would be, I want to be like Zacharias and in Elizabeth, even in my life that hasn't been perfect. Maybe I'm older now and I missed it. Maybe I, I'm living in a minority group and I'm just a priest over here and I, I'm barren and darn, that really hurts and I don't have all the answers there. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay faithful. I'm going to stay faithful during this time. I'm not going to give in because I want to be ready when it goes down and I want to have my life counted as faithful. And I already alluded to the fact that in verse 5, it says that this all happened in the days of Herod. Now, again, Herod was no good. Okay? I don't want to waste the rest of our time talking about Herod, but you need to understand this guy was two things. He was brilliant, more brilliant than you'll ever be. Okay? But beyond that, he was evil to the core. Okay? That combination is the scariest of all. Brilliant, a mastermind, invented quick Crete cement in that day, was able to create aqueducts of freshwater systems and have freshwater pools by saltwater coast. It was like MTV Cribs at his house, and he was able to produce palaces and make things that still to this day, engineers today, look at what he made. They're like, how did he do it? As a matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, there's what's known as Herodian stones. They're the stones of the second temple that he had crafted in a quarry, hauled over to Jerusalem, laid there at the footbed of the Temple Mount, 36 feet in length, 12 feet in width, 12 feet in depth. These stones that have his logo imprinted on each one of them, it's like a Nike swoosh all over the place, Herod, Herod, Herod. They're called Herodian stones. They weigh the same equivalent as a Boeing 747, fully fueled and fully passengered with people, and people, and to this day day it would take 18, 18 wheelers to move one of these stones across the sand and to put it in place. So important was the temple configuration that all of the work had to be done in the quarry away from the temple, no chisels, no hammers, no screwdrivers, and to be brought then perfectly erected and crafted and ordered and then put into place. I mean, you can't even, it's the, the craftsmanship is so, pro I made a sandbox or two in my life, you know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't even hold sand, you know, like these guys, these gals, engineers still don't know how, we, how they moved it. How could you even move this? We don't, we would have trouble moving these stones. And they're not just one, two, there's hundreds of these stones. Matter of fact, I was there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount that remains today. And I was on the Temple Mount, it was a safe day. We didn't know if we were going to be able to go up there. And it was a safe day, these guys, AK-47s and Uzis, riot gear, grenade launchers, tear gas, all just there on a normal day. How you doing? I'm like... I'm good so far, you know, and, and I, 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 these are Herodian stones, the same stones that Jesus Christ walked on. So I found myself with an untied shoe, or at least I pretended. So I, I bent down here, and I'm tying my shoe right next to this crack in the ground, and I grabbed one of these little stones off the ground, a little Herodian stone, and popped right up and put that in my pocket right there. Got myself a Herodian stone. I just, don't do that. It's a bad idea. You get shot on there. And anyway, so I got this. Anyways, Herod. 
Herod. It was actually, he was so bad. He, he killed his wife's. He killed his sons, executed them. He'd be afraid. You listening to me? You listening to me? He'd kill him, just have him executed. He would actually dress up like a peasant and go hang around the water coolers and listen to what people were saying, kind of like the NSA today, and he would just listen what's going on, just assassinate people. He would invite people. He got in so much trouble for assassinating people that he had to do it more cleverly, so he'd invite people for pool parties at his Mediterranean house, and he had so many drownings, it was ridiculous. You know, come on over and swim, you know, political rivals and all the rest, and it was said in that day, it was safer to be Herod's dog than to be his son because he just killed everyone. He actually was the mastermind behind the, um, the palace and the refuge of Masada. Some of you have been there. In Masada, they're overlooking the Dead Sea. And this whole area of Masada was designed for him to flee a Roman occupation in order to then go up to Masada. It's still there to this day. It's crazy. And there it was so big and so expansive, you could actually get to the top of Masada and nobody else could come up after you. And you could live there without any supplies coming or going for three years in length. Water, freshwater cisterns and caverns, spas and salons, all kinds of stuff, food and all the rest. Long story short, the Jews actually fled there during the Roman occupation in 70 AD and were there for, I think, six months or even longer before finally, it's a true story, the Romans were able to build a siege ramp just with buckets of sand. Finally, all the way up a siege ramp, and they walked up, and the very night before they walked in there, the Jews decided it's better to live free than to die as slaves. And so they decided to cast lots and they executed every single one of them that very night before the Romans. That place was made though for Herod. And by the way, Herod never even went there. The guy was a straight maniacal lunatic. Okay, I say that again because that's how Luke opens up his book. He gives three, three characters. Herod. Oh, Herod. Herod would be the one that would, when he heard two years later after this, two years later after this, two years later after this, when the wise men came to Herod, they're like, hey, we heard a king was born. He's like, really? Tell me more. A king, we saw this star of Bethlehem, and for two years we've been following it. Did you know that when the wise men saw Jesus, he was a two-year-old, a toddler, and they came to him and presented those gifts, not upon his birth in the manger, that's the shepherds. They showed up two years later, and so when Herod heard that, he's like, oh, I would love to give that little king a birthday present too. Can you go ahead and give me his mailing address? And so the shepherds, or should I say the wise men, went to sleep and an angel woke them up and said, don't give him the address. It's a trick. You know, get out of here. And they fled the other way to Egypt. And Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt as well and hid there until you guys know what happened next. Herod said, you know what? I'm going to get this kid. I'm just going to kill every little boy. Okay. It's two years and younger. Just all, all of them. Every single, it doesn't, I don't care if you weren't there. I don't care if you were born. Everyone dies. This guy had no heart and he was crazy. His sons and his fathers are seen. He comes from the tribe of Esau and he's an Edomite and he is a bad dude fighting God's people. And I just say that to say this. He made the Bible because he's real, but these other two made the Bible as well because they're faithful. Look at verse 5 again. We see Zacharias and we see Elizabeth. And in verse 6, it says, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. I already told you they're old, they're poor, and they're barren. In those days, they didn't have hospice, they didn't have uh, um, uh, retirement centers, they didn't have old folks' homes. If you were getting older, it was your kids who would take care of you. So if you don't have kids and you're poor, you're not going to have anywhere to go. And so this would have been emotionally devastating for these two. And let me just tell you the two things they didn't do in their barrenness, in their trauma, and in their temptation to go Herod's route. Here's the two things they didn't do. Number one, they didn't sin, okay? That is, they didn't get divorced, 
Did, did you know that in that culture, if a woman was, or if a family was barren, it was equated to the woman. It was her fault, not his fault. They didn't know nowadays that it could have been either party. And so they built in a clause in the law that said, if you can't have kids, it's the gal's fault, which gave the dude freedom to legally divorce his wife and go get another one. Okay, that's just the way it was. Did you know what Zacharias didn't do? That. So that's all right. Whew, let's be faithful. Okay, they didn't take it into their own hands and start doing stupid stuff, sinful stuff. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever been hurt, barren, burdened, broken, confused, scared, perplexed, and then done stupid stuff? Yeah, these guys didn't. They're, they're a great model. They made the book. They're nobodies. Okay, not only did they not sin, okay, but they didn't get bitter. They, they didn't stop worshiping God. They didn't say, you know what, no, we'll, we'll stay together, but we're not going to be priests and we're going to be faithful. They instead, in the midst of their poverty, bitterness, and pain, they said, we're going to be more faithful than ever before. Zechariah shows up, week in, ah, oh, didn't win. Maybe next time, a year later, ah, oh, didn't win. He just stays faithful, and God looks at them in the midst of Herod, the crazy, and prophesies over this couple and says, I see you standing out. I see what I'm going to do. And he fast forwards then and he tells them, look at verse 11. I've read the verses and made commentary. Verse 11 says, and then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar. When Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear came upon him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid. I would say that's a word for someone here today. I haven't done the research, but they say that there's over 365 verses in the Bible that say, do not be afraid. One for every day of the year. The Bible says that he has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I prayed for a gentleman at the end of the first service who said, I'm just stricken with fear, fear. And I said, that's not of the Lord. Let's pray against that. Let's make that go away. And I would say this, the opposite of fear is faith. And this man was afraid during this day, and he, God was instructing him through this angel to fear not. Your prayers have been heard. Now, I got one final thought I'm going to develop, and I'll have the worship team come up, and we're going to end in prayer. And communion. When the angel said your prayers have been heard, which prayers was it? What if it was this? What if when he was there doing the incense, everyone outside is praying, he's like, Lord bless Israel, forgive us of our sins and lead us, Lord. And, and while I'm here, I wonder if I could get that kid. I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to be this close to the Lord again. I might as well ask again. The Bible says in the book of Revelation chapter eight, that God is storing up our prayers in a bowl. And that once that bowl is so full, it tips over and action happens. Sometimes when you pray, one time, just one time, you find that prayer working. Sometimes it takes two. Sometimes it takes three. I wonder if your bowl in your life, in your knees, is filling right now. Zechariah just showed up. It doesn't say what he prayed, but when he prayed, it was answered. Someone came up with an acronym years ago. It makes sense. It's called PUSH. Pray until something happens. And until something happens, maybe like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you would just today commit to toe the line. I'm just going to be faithful. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not anybody special. Things didn't go the way I wanted them to. Man, I don't ever get picked. It feels like gym class again. You know, I, I just keep losing. feels like the lotto. I just, things aren't going well for me. You know what I'm going to do in the midst of my culture that's going mad? I'm going to be one of those who goes in the water and gets baptized. I'm going to be one of those who stays faithful and takes communion and worships God and who, who gives of my tithe and offering and who prays at meals and who disciples my kids. And I'm going to be one of those faithful people in the midst of chaos and carnality that says no to sin and yes to God. I'm going to have you bow your heads right now and close your eyes and ask you to commit the same way.
Father, we approach you now in prayer, and we ask, God, that you would be glorified in our study of your word, our anticipation, Lord, of who you are. You have been perfect thus far. You haven't changed. And so as we come to the table now, Lord, we do so examining ourselves and proclaiming your death. And I pray, Lord, faithfulness to be ours today. And if you're here right now and you would just say, look, I don't, I don't want to be unfaithful. I want to be faithful. Would you just raise your hand right now? Just raise your hand, Lord. I want to be faithful. I want to be righteous. Raise your hand right now. If you want to walk the line, if you want to show up, you want to stay with the Lord, you don't want to be disregarded or you don't want to be bitter. Maybe you're disappointed and you're ready. You don't want to do it anymore, but today you're saying, Lord, use me. Raise your hand right now. Maybe you're a Christian. You've been a Christian for longer than I've been alive, but you've been on the outside. But you want to be faithful today. Raise your hand. Lord, you see your kids. Maybe you're not even a believer here. Raise your hand right now. Become a believer in Jesus. He is real. And he has died for your sins and provided for your life and anticipates your being with him forever. Jesus, we love you and we need you. We take communion now, celebrating. In Jesus' name, amen.